Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting radiolemon.com. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Podcast. Uh, I'm Paul Tarsi, and I'm delighted to welcome my partner in crime for all things motorsport, uh, and that's Paul Jurd, my dear old chap. How are you? Very fine, thank you very much, and uh, a pleasure to be with you and with everybody on this podcast. Now, you've been around racing cars and racing and things for almost as long as I have, and that's saying something, but uh, I mean, you've you go right back to organising Jensen Button's website, for goodness sake, right at the beginning of his career, don't you? And beyond that. Well, I actually, I got into this through going to Le Mans in 1986 and three years later was race reporting for Autosports. But yes, yes, I did. I did, did a lot of the text on Jensen's website for his uh, first year and uh, then then hosted his fan club Christmas party, which is possibly the peak of my career. <laughs> So when you say his first year, was that his first year in Formula One? It was, yes, because I'd actually been press officer in Formula Three when he did Formula Three and he jumped up to Formula. He did Formula Three in 1999 with Promotechmi Renault and then jumped straight to Williams in Formula One. And that was at a time when you could do that, wasn't it? And there's big, big talk these days about how you get enough people with super licenses to be reserved drivers or anything else. But you could just jump straight in, couldn't you? You could. And also, I think the, the more relaxed rules on testing at that time made that a lot easier because you could get car time without actually being at a race meeting. Of course. Yeah, that was the, the other thing. So that was him in a Williams, which uh, which is hard to think about now all those years ago, isn't it? It was, but at the time that was that was a prime seat to go into. Yeah, you know, it was yeah. a team still at still at their peak and still running right at the front. And and how the how the mighty have fallen in so many ways, which I think is is sad for anybody who likes to look back on on Formula One and and the history of Formula One. That's to see Frank's team, and I see it as Frank's team rather than a family team, um, languishing in the second half of the grid at best is uh, is heartbreaking. Well, that is, is, you know, when you watch a race and you get excited about Williams possibly scoring a point, yeah. you know, it's a long way away from the heady days when they were the class of the field and, you know, races were basically being battled out between PK and Mansell or Mansell and Patrese and they were the dominant force. Yeah, yeah. Um, and let's hope it comes back. It'll. We'll have to wait and see what um, Norrelton Capital are going to do with it. But uh, I'm fairly hopeful because they should get some investment and uh, and should get out there and do it. But uh, if, you, uh, if you're if you listening to us, you're listening to us on the RSL platform. And uh, we're very grateful to Radio Show Limited for agreeing to carry the Historic Racing News podcast. And that will be going out every month. And you can follow us and tell us what you want to hear and what you want to talk about and uh, and your views on the on the bits and pieces that Paul and I are talking about. You can also find Historic Racing News on Facebook, uh, on Twitter as Hist Racing News, and of course on our website, historicracingnews.com. Um, it's a funny kind of world at the moment that we've lived in, Paul, with uh, with not a huge amount of 
racing activity, on track activity, and, and such that we've had, not many people have been able to go to. But, but there have been some things this month, haven't there? There have, actually, yes. You're right, it's been a very strange year. It was, doesn't seem that long ago that I was sat putting together the calendar for the year that we carry on the website, and I think I had 120 events on it at the time. And thinking back, if a dozen of those have actually happened, I think we've had a good year, basically. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking to to think about it, but we've we've had we've had a few things. Um, one of which we really ought to talk about is the Goodwood um, Speed Week. Um, if ever there was a misnomer, it was Speed Week. Uh, I, th- I think Speed Three Days really just doesn't ring. <laughs> Anybody does it and carry a lot of weight, basically. No, I don't think it does. I think that that that's the the idea was to roll up the the members meeting festival speed and the revival into one event, which was going to be held, unfortunately, behind closed doors. Um, and I sat and watched it. I mean, you you and I both stood outside the gates and sobbed that they wouldn't let us in but it was it was good to watch on telly uh high spots for you high high spots for me i i i I think it was just some of the racing which really was a fantastic ad advert for just the historic world you know who couldn't have enjoyed the sf edge races oh those those veteran cars where you can just see every action of the driver yeah yeah um i mean i think it's it's fabulous from that and yeah i agree with you the racing what do you think about the the rally stages and and those sorts of things that 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 they were running of course on what would normally be public areas i'm going to be slightly heretical here and say that i've tended for most of my life regarded rallying as a way of getting a nice car muddy but um (laughs) but no again it was to, to be if they in fact, they were taking the elements of, as you said, those three meetings and then trying to turn them in to an eight, ten hour TV program, which essentially is what happens when you're trying to stream something. That is a tremendous challenge to, to you know, very, very different to running the Festival of Speed where you've got the hill, you've got the rally stage, the, the revival where everything happens on the circuit. And to put all those elements together, I think, was was quite a big challenge. You know, it's tricky because, again, you were appealing to different audiences at different times, weren't you? You know, I was what, you know, I, I, you know you, I'm looking forward to things like the SF Edge, the St. Mary's Trophy for the saloons, which is always cracking. And some of the single seater racing, the Glover Trophy was a cracking race on the Sunday. But then you also had the drift cars coming in and the supercar paddock. So they were trying to pull in all their potential audiences in one go which was a big, big challenge. And I think they got pretty close to probably what they were achieving. Yeah, I was I was quite cynical going into it. I uh, I thought, yeah, this this may or may not be be the way it's working, but it seems to have come out quite well. And I I could certainly have done without the fashion tips and all those sorts of things. But the actual on track action was good uh, that if if you didn't manage to catch it, then most of it is is now on youtube and that that's that's certainly worth a look because there were some some remarkable things i think that were were going around not least of which nick padmore breaking the lap record in uh, in the arrows the ex derek warwick arrows um, from a standing start going around some 10 or 11 seconds faster 
than Jackie Stewart or Jim Clark did on a flying lap, which I think is, um, there is no comparison. So don't shoot me down for that. But, but nonetheless, I thought that was, uh, that was good to see. It was, of course, Nick, Nick Padmore has form for this. I think he does hold the race lap record, doesn't he, in mm. a uh, Loda T70 Spider off think the top right. of my head. So he knows his way around there. But even so, that was I, I actually really enjoyed that. It was a great mix of vehicles going out there. And, yeah, you know, you can see from some of the drivers, you know, the t- commitment was absolutely superb. Yeah, I, I think all credit to, to Goodwood for trying it, for, for trying to make it work. Um, hopefully come next march when the members meeting should be about we'll all be there and uh, waving our flags but but who knows uh but i think it was a it was a valiant effort and all, all credit to to goodwood for doing it and as i say if you haven't seen it do have a have a look on youtube because there's some great stuff particularly i mean paul you and i both love those sf edge edwardian races and i think that that's that's a, a real, real treat. So, and something you don't see very often. So it's uh, it's well worth it. If you haven't seen it for that, then uh, then it's it's worth it just just for that. Um, other events have been going on, Paul. We've had the HSCC finals. We have yes, the HSCC managed to pull off their close their season and actually uh, rattle off nine championships at Silverstone back on the seventeenth and eighteenth of October. So uh, you know, fantastic performance by them. So it was. Uh, yeah, you know, you had uh, some interesting to see how historic racing goes when you've got young drivers like Ben Tilly and Ben Styles took the classic F3, classic Formula 4 2000 titles. And, um, you know, even going into the meeting, the historic F3 went to Ian Bankhurst in an Alexis. There's a name from the past yeah, who, yeah. who already had an unbeatable uh, points tally. Young but- Cam Jackson in a Brabham won the classic Formula Junior in the front engine title when the, uh, the rear engine went to Ray Malik. Any, any, anyone want to have a stab at what he may have been driving? Uh, let me think. Go on, tell me. It was a Malik U2 Mark II. Fabulous. So, so, uh, nice, nice front engine Formula 3 car there. Um, it, I, I think with, um, with those kind of things, we mustn't underestimate the sterling effort that, that race organisers have, have gone through to uh to do that i mean that motor racing legends have have put on the um the tourist trophy meeting at um at silverstone at the end of at the end of october that we've had uh the castle coombe classic which really suffered because um they have they had uh the worst of the weather didn't they they certainly did that was, that was an amazing weekend i think the uk's rainfall figure Records were broken. I was at Alton Park on the Saturday for the MG Car Club meeting, and I was amazed we raced in the afternoon, to be quite honest. I have seldom in my 30-plus years of going to race circuits got quite so wet. In (laughs) fact, I I returned to my jacket I'd been wearing because I realised I'd left it in the car on Tuesday, having got home late on Saturday night, and it was still soaking wet. I did wonder why the car was still steaming up. Yeah, and I'm sure that the mushrooms were great. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even going to go down that road. If I, if I can quickly just return to the HSCC at Silverstone, just a couple, couple of points of note there. The, the historic road sports, which are always entertaining at an HSCC meeting. Anthony Ross won the historic section in an Alpha 27 years after winning an HSCC title in the same car, yeah, which really cool. just shows how you can, you in, particularly in historic motorsport, if you can get the right car, you can race season in season out with really your costs are just your race entries and your consumables yeah and and i think that 
that indicates some of the diversity and I, I say that with with a, a heavy heart in some ways because you know we talked about Goodwood where people are going and 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 buying a car and running it and selling it straight after the race um occasionally i'm not saying everybody does by a very long way but but people who buy a car for a season's racing or whatever it might be and then you get somebody like that who's running a car for decades and that they are very different and i think you know people sometimes tend to lump historic racing all in together we know the the problems with the historical technical passport where if it looks like a d-type jaguar and smells like a d-type jaguar and is built like a d-type jaguar then it's a d-type jaguar even if it was built in 2019 um you know that's a difficult one but an alpha that you've been running for 30 odd years is is fabulous and i think that's that's probably the lifeblood of what what we do isn't it I, I think so, to be quite honest. And there are these unsung heroes out there. At the same meeting, Jeremy Clark won the 70s road sports in his land for the third time in a row. And I actually know Jeremy, or Jez, as he's better known to everybody. And that's his seventh, seventh title that I know of. He's won four, he was Formula V champion twice, Porsche Club Championship champion twice, and now three road sports. You know, if that's not an unsung hero of British motorsport, I don't know who is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and unsung is exactly the way of putting it but i think it's a it's a great thing it's great great thing to to do and i think it's it's also great that we've we've had the opportunity over the years of of working with um with david and sarah at hsr historic sports car racing in the us and that they are going ahead with their program to run daytona and sebring classic the the classic 24 hours at daytona and the classic 12 hours at sebring um i've been lucky enough to commentate on both of those events for the last few years i'm desperately sad not to be out there doing it this year but uh, the thought of sitting in an airplane for eight hours uh just doesn't appeal to me i'm afraid <laughs> strange no, not at the moment, but I, I, th I was thinking about this actually in the last day or two. They're, they're going ahead with those meetings. So Daytona is the first weekend of November and Sebring 12 hours, Pistons and Props just one month later. But we've discussed this before. In fact, we were both at the, the Daytona event in 2015 in the fact that they run their meetings in a very, very different way to what we, we would expect in this country in that the orientation and the focus of the meeting is on giving the competitor a bit of experience, isn't it? I can remember on the Saturday at Daytona. Now, Daytona sits, I think, a quarter of a million people. They had 3,000 paying spectators, which there's nobody in a venue that size. You can't even find them. And they were pleased that they got that many in because the focus is on the competitors. And I think possibly if you are going to be you know, operating in bubbles and you're trying to keep people isolated, that actually is an easier model to transfer to an operating meeting than actually we have in this country where something like the Silverstone Classic, where we're expecting 100,000 extra people on top of the competitors and everyone who's needed to run the meeting. Yeah, and, and I think it's one, of the, uh, it's one of the imponderables at the moment that can, can we see something like Revival, something like Silverstone Classic running in 2021? I don't know. I'm not going to say we can't, but... Um, who knows what the future holds? I think one of the the other things that that's um, happened this year is that we perhaps haven't had the opportunity to celebrate 
and commemorate some important anniversaries that uh, quite a lot has happened since uh, or as we as we've been in 2020 the not least of which the first ever Porsche victory at Le Mans and That's that was right. a, that was I a historic one it certainly was 50 years ago back in 1970 with uh, Richard Atwood and Hans Hermann in that a very distinctive and instantly recognizable red 917kh with the white flashes around the headlights that go back across the bodywork probably one of the the classic liveries really yeah and uh, i was i was thinking about this the other day that that of course was the year that steve mcqueen films his his film of le mans uh, lots of people get get the film mixed up with reality one way or another you know and uh, that if you talk to people who are perhaps a little peripherally involved in motorsport, you know, they, they will talk about Le Mans and within two sentences, they've talked about Steve McQueen, which is, which is always a bit of a red rag to a bull to me, but yes, Herman and Atwood went out and, and won it. And, um, that it was, it was the Martini car that was second. And, uh, and of course the third place in that race is an interesting one because that was a chap called Helmut Marco. Uh, who went on to great things with Red Bull, but he uh, he went on to to come third in that. But the the really interesting thing for that is that when Solar Productions put together the whole of the Le Mans film, based on the fact that they were going to film the race itself, was the natural assumption that the pale blue and orange golf cars we're going to win um and that part of the production problems that they had back in those days was because there was perilously little track action uh, for any of those cars the the rodriguez kenyan car went out after four hours having blown its engine um the hobbs and halewood car had an accident an hour later and the Siffert Redmond car, which was the number 20 and therefore supposed to star as uh, as the winning or the, the lead car, um, the number 20 car with Siffert Redmond driving it, blew up at four o'clock in the morning. So um, they, one of the things they had to do was to do a lot more filming than they really wanted to do with the golf cars, simply because they didn't have enough in the can and that... I think one of the one of the other things which is is quite interesting is that the the solar productions entered a car in the race as we as we know the 9082 Porsche which they put um, Herbert Linger and Jonathan Williams in and that car had to stop every 45 minutes to ch- change the film in the camera <laughs> now you know that that these days the cameras that you see in, in race cars are about the same size as, as your mobile phone. You, but... you almost said cigarette, cigarette packet, didn't you? <laughs> Showing your age there. <laughs> but the, you know, the, that's what you've got these days. But in those days, it was the full TV camera bit that, uh, that sat in that car. They had, had to stop every 45 minutes to change the film as well as compete in the race. And that's, they finished in the top 10 simply because it was such a race of attrition. But it, it's that was a, a good one. And, you know, that we talk about Richard Atwood, who is still racing. 
He is. You, you, you say, you know, they say they bet on the uh, the JWA, the famous golf delivery cars, which, which would have been a sound bet because they were sweeping all before them at that time. In fact, Le Mans in 70 and 71 were the only races they didn't win, I think, off the top of my head. They certainly won at Daytona in that period. And uh, sorry, just, just off on a slight tangent, the uh, the team manager, John Wire, who was always basically probably feared by his most of his drivers as a, as a quite stern character, reputedly Halewood, who crashed their car, um, came back to the pits carrying the steering wheel for some strange reason. <laughs> and it's supposed to have got a death glare from John Wire, who simply said, is that all that's left or is that what broke? That's a good line. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, he was. He was known as Death Ray, wasn't he? Um, he, he was. Yes, he was. Um, but yeah, not, to was, his, not to his face. <laughs> but also, probably one of the first of the, the more modern breed of team managers. He would give his cars a lap time and basically say, "If we do that lap time, we will win the Mott." And it worked in '68 and '69 with the GT40s, which by then were probably heading towards obsolescence. And yet, for you know, for team organization. They were absolutely superb. There is, they, they took over, Porsche approached them to run the 917s in 1970 because they'd been beating them with old cars the year before when Porsche were primarily running the 910s and the 908s and the 917 was racing but was a bit of a wild beast. And uh, Porsche said, how many cars do you want to win the world title? And why apparently reputedly said, two, but I'd like three, so we've got a spare. <laughs> and in his biography, he says, he says, it went very quiet. And then the man from Porsche said, we built 17 last year and didn't beat you. And it turned out they were building new cars for every race because wow. that was the Porsche way. Wow. So his level of organization and preparation and the way, you know, as you do now, you know, cars are completely stripped down after races. Everything's replaced that needs replacing and put back together was very, very, you know, was very new and innovative for the period. So very, very successful man you know they even went on to have success with the mirages later on in the 70s yeah yeah um it, it, you're right it was the beginning of a a new era and and that's great one of the other things with 1970 of course is that we can't not recognize the the anniversary of the death of Jochen Rindt, uh which i think still shakes everybody to the core who who was around at that sort of time, and I certainly was. And then I can remember the news coming through. I was working on that Saturday and driving home in my uh, in my Morris 1100, and that hearing that that Jochen Rint had had died in practice at Monza. And I think it's you know it, it's still one of those unthinkable things which. Uh, which we have to deal with. And and I've just been reading uh, a book by David Tremaine about Jochen Rint. Uh, and I I highly, highly recommend it. Um, if you want to see the review, it will be out on historicracingnews.com fairly shortly. So uh, have a look at that. But David Tremaine has really got under the skin of of Jochen Rint and, and who he was and just you know, how how all those things went on. And I'm I'm not going to say too much more than that because it's a thoroughly good read. It's a reprint, actually, of something which was put out by Haynes some 10 years ago. And Haynes have stopped publishing um, other things other than their manuals. So consequently, they allowed David Tremaine to print it again. And, and Evro have 
have republished it as a paperback so it's it's cheap it's a great read so go on and, and have a look at that and if i may whilst we're just talking about that talk about some other books that have come across my desk at tarsi towers one of them is uh is called ford versus ferrari the battle for supremacy at le mans in 1966 which has been written by john starkey um a very well established um author in his own right and that's of, of, particularly of around that period as well isn't it i've got a very very nice book on the lola t70 by john yeah yeah i mean he's he's probably best known for his t70s more than anything else um this is published by veloce uh and yeah that, there's a if i'm honest there's a a hint of jumping on the bandwagon because suddenly half the world thinks that lamar only ever ran in 1966 <laughs> but um, but it's a good book. It's well worth a read. But I, I actually just wanted to address something which is right at the very end of the book. It is actually the the very last part of the book where um, it it is it is written by John Starkey in the first person, and it says sometimes around 1986, a collector named Fred Jones uh, and who collected cobras and was interested in Ford motorsport history, began looking for documents to complete his archives. Da, da, da. Fred soon found accounts about the crash that were at odds with some witnesses that, about the crash that claimed Miles's life. One mechanic had witnessed the crash, and his report, it sounded as if the car's suspension or brakes had failed. Goes on to talk about that. But he said that he was put in touch with a chap um, and uh, who was living in a trailer on a car park and his driver's license he showed me his driver's license and in the name it said Kenneth Henry Miles born 1918 that I said why are you living like this the old man claimed that although he had survived his head injuries Ford had not wanted any adverse publicity from his accident this was the time when Ralph Nader's book Unsafe at Any Speed was making big waves in the public and scandalized casualty figures of Americans on the road. Death in a racing car was uh, was completely unacceptable. So this man who said he was Ken Miles said that Ford paid him $2 million to disappear. He'd gone to Hawaii with his wife and son, but then had fallen out with them and they had taken his money and left him, hence his impoverished circumstances. Make of this what you will. Well, now, that does take the story off in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, if I'm honest, that's up there with the Americans never went to the moon and and a few other things. But, but uh, it's just, yeah, you're right. It takes it in a different different dimension. Um, the other main book that I've been been losing sleep over is a book published by Porter Press International, which is called the Rothko Collection, uh, which is written by Doug Nye, a uh, huge book uh, that Porter Press are particularly good at producing very, very high quality books. And this has every single car in the Rothko collection. If anybody doesn't know the Rothko collection, this is something which has been put together by a man called Rolf Goethe and that he is just mad on golf-sponsored racing cars of any sort. 
um, and this has every car in his collection, which is, wait for it, something over 40. 40 cars, and none of these are make weights. And we've, we're talking about everything from the, the things you would expect, probably the Porsche 917 in pale blue and orange, pale blue and marigold is what we're supposed to call it, um, through GT40s, the, the Mirage prototypes as well, but other things like the, the Helmet, Helmet TX, which was the gas turbine things. I'm, I'm sure that you've, you remember seeing that at um, Le Mans Classic one year, Paul. Very, very much so, to be quite honest. Yeah, that is a fantastic collection of cars, isn't it? The, well, yeah. the, the, the wonderful aside, I always think, is that, of course, it's golf, the, 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 the powder blue and, sorry, what was it, what we're supposed to call the orange? Marigold. Is not actually, of course, Golf Oil's house colours. Oh. It's actually a dark blue, wasn't it? But they, they, this was the, the pale blue was associated with subsidiary of theirs, but just looked much nicer on a race car. Yeah, yeah. And um, they have got in the collection the Kramer Porsche K8, which Derek Bell drove at Le Mans um, in, in the later years, in 1995, which is in the dark blue and orange. That's but right, true, true to the colours, yes. But there's there's also um, cars like the the Brabham BT26 from 1969, which was That's a golf-sponsored car. The very uh, pretty racing car of the period. But, of course, green with a yellow stripe, nothing to do with, uh, with that. Um, right the way through to you know, all, all sorts of other things, Porsche 9083s, the McLarens, the... Uh, the McLaren Can-Am cars, um, and also M7s, M14s. All of these are in one man's collection. So, uh, yes, I'm just gently sitting here talking about it and going green with envy. But it's, um, you know, it was a a, a real treat. And I I thoroughly, absolutely recommend that. It's uh, it's not cheap, seventy five quid, but um, but it's a uh, it's a great book, and because each car gets its own section, you can pick it up and put it down. I think that for me, you know, that's great. If you can have a book that you can read over your breakfast every morning, then then that's great. And you can do a car a day, and you don't bombard yourself with too many facts. But uh, it's it's great. It's from Porter Press International, um, which is porterpress.co.uk. You can buy it from them on their website. Uh, and if you need to, if you need to drop a hint with a significant other somewhere as to what you might like um, for Christmas, then I think you could go a lot worse <laughs> than doing that. So, uh, so that's that's a good one to do, and uh, some some worthwhile things. Um, we will continue to update you on books and we will also have those again on facebook twitter and on historicracingnews.com because we'll uh, we'll continue to to keep you informed as to the very best books that we come across and that we we find because i think all of those are are good anything to look forward to in your life paul for the uh, for the forthcoming month um, well, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have actually managed to get to a few race meetings. So I have one more to do at the beginning of November. And just touching on what we touched earlier on, they are very, very different places to be suddenly. It is very, very strange how 
not having a paying public or the couple I've been to where we have with them not being allowed in the paddock and around the pits areas so changes the feel of a meeting. So, uh, yeah, we've got that looking forward to. I'm also just really looking forward to what's happening. We can get some video, you know, watch some of the online stuff from uh, the HSR's meetings. And it's also, I'm just really pleased that we actually are seeing people starting to put out dates for 2021. You know, that if they've got the confidence to start booking circuits, we can only pray that they can then actually pull off those meetings. We've got first weekend of July 2021, the rearranged the more classic that should have happened this year. And Peter Auto have actually put out their full European schedule now. And just in the last few days, the Donington Historic Festival is aiming to happen on the 1st and 2nd of May 2021. So, uh, you know, good luck to Duncan Wiltshire, Richard Grafton and all the historic promotions that they can pull that one off for us. Yeah, and I, th I think we shouldn't, as, as I've said, underestimate the sheer hard work that people have gone through with this. These are very testing times not only for car owners, drivers, race teams, but also for promoters and even for circuit owners that uh, there's a huge, been a huge gap in 2020 in income for all of those people. And uh, that we, we are going to see in some ways some tough times ahead, but the, mo the motorsport community does tend to pull itself uh, together very well and pull together. Uh, but, extraordinarily well in in difficult times so the one thing i want to talk about before we wrap up is that we have seen at the end of october um the the victory by a chap called lewis hamilton um which makes him the most winning formula one driver of all time and i i just did some i've just done some sums uh, and Hopefully on a pencil and pad. Of course. Is there any other way? Uh, and that the one I wanted to work out was that because there are so many Formula One races now, and by now I don't mean this year, I mean for the last 15 years, that it's much easier for people to score lots of victories. And so I thought I was going to have a look and see what percentage victories people had and probably a very sensible way of looking at it i think you know jim clark was winning titles but in seasons of only nine or ten races who do you think's number one on the list of percentages Ooh, that's putting me on the spot i'm gonna go with jim clark no it's fangio who won 24 out of 52 races he won 46 percent of the grand prix he started which is absolutely incredible. And this from a man who didn't come to Europe to a race till he was in his 40s. Yes. That you had um, Alberto Ascari was second. Um, I mean, he only started 33 Grand Prix, but he won 13 of them. So that's 39%. Um, third on the list is Lewis Hamilton. And I think that is a tremendous achievement in itself because you know, there's... There's a lot more races and therefore a lot more opportunities not to win. Um, and he's got 35%. Uh, and then you have then you have Jim Clark with 34. Uh, Michael Schumacher had 29%. Jackie Stewart had 27. Ayrton Senna, who people put up on that podium so often, only 25%. Only, he says. Which uh, is only from an era where he had some very, very stiff competition. 
true and and you yeah. know you 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 this is an inexact science because you can't factor in how dominant the car was that anybody was running or um or what the the strength of the competition was um but interestingly though no sterling moss in the top 10 um no graham hill Jochen Rint, no alonso fettel nigel mansell nicky lauder no emerson fittipaldi no james hunt all of those people are outside the top 10 and in inside the top 10 uh, this is this is where it's an inexact science you have lee wallard and bill vukovic and that is because in the 50s the indianapolis 500 for some unexplicable reason inexplicable reason um was part of the the indy 500 was part of the world championship and nobody ever crossed over nobody ever did the 500 from the formula one world championship or vice versa so can i I jump in at this point oh go on was it roger ward who actually brought a sprint car from that from the dirt tracks to sebring in 59 because they thought they had a chance against the formula one cars and turned out to be 10 seconds or something a lap slower you are absolutely right and i i i knew i knew that uh, you would trip me up anything that has anything to do with percentages or statistics i'm on a loser when i'm talking to you so uh, if it's... you've got a spreadsheet you've got a friend <laughs> it might be your only friend mate um, <laughs> but uh, yeah lee wallard did uh, did competed in three indy 500s and won one of them and Bill Vukovic did six Indy 500s and won two of them. So they both got 33%. But really interesting, forget those, um, that, uh, let's say, Ayrton Senna was the, was the eye-opener for me. The fact that Alonso isn't in the top of the list, Louder isn't in the top of the list, I think is is fascinating. But uh, all credit, and I'm, I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool Lewis Hamilton fan, um, read into that statement whatever you will but uh but i think you know he's done a tremendous tremendous job and all credit to him for uh, for what he's achieved that's right so it's a tremendous record you know you've got drivers who you know sterling moss never won one grand prix so to win 90 plus is still some going admittedly in a very very different era as you've just outlined yeah yeah i mean he, moss never won a championship and and sorry uh, sorry so, championship not grand yeah. prix of course he won grand prix yes yeah but but nonetheless yes it's uh it's interesting stuff um so that brings to the end this edition of the historic racing news.com podcast uh we've talked about all sorts of different things we've talked about some anniversaries we've talked about the goodwood three days of uh speed we've uh, we've talked about various other things the the books we're reading we'll keep on with that uh, please give us some feedback please let us know uh, probably best via facebook and let us know what you think of of what we've done and also what you'd like to see us talk about we'll be back to uh, talk about that but uh, from paul jurd and from me paul tarsi that's it for this month. It's goodbye from me and a big goodbye from me. Thank you very much, everybody.